So as I said at the beginning of the last talk that the, the title or our theme this morning is the three advents of Christ. And if you've paid attention, we've only talked about two. The first coming of the Lord in the flesh in Bethlehem, the second coming of the Lord in glory at the end of time. Well, what is this third coming, this third advent that the title mentions? Well, over the course of the church's life, throughout history, and as a fruit of her Advent reflection on the coming of the Lord, as the church's meditation and understanding deepened, the church, in her prayer, in her preaching, had come to reflect on not just the first and second comings of the Lord, but also recognizing a third that we shouldn't ignore. Take, for example, the Advent preaching of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He locates a third coming of the Lord between the first and second comings of Christ. And this is your, the first text on your handout there for talk two. St. Bernard preaches, we know that there are three comings of the Lord. The third lies between the other two. It is invisible, while the other two are visible. In the first coming, Christ was seen on earth, dwelling among men. He himself testifies that they saw him and they hated him. In the final coming, all flesh will see the salvation of our God, and they will look on him whom they pierced. Bernard saying, when Christ came in the flesh at Bethlehem, his own people saw him and rejected him. When Christ comes again in glory, all nations will see him in his glory, and they will look on him whom they have pierced, giving some allusion to what we see in the resurrection narratives of the Gospels. Christ in glory will still bear his scars, the scars of his passion. So Bernard's just underscoring that there's a visible quality, the two principal comings of the Lord. He comes in the flesh, people see him. He will come again in glory, people will see him. The intermediate coming, however, the one between the first and the second coming is a hidden one, he says. It is only the elect who see the Lord within their own selves and they are saved. In his first coming, our Lord came in our flesh and in our weakness. In this middle coming, he comes in spirit and in power. In the final coming, he will be seen in glory and majesty. Because this coming, the intermediate, hidden, spiritual coming, lies between the other two, it is like a road on which we travel from the first coming to the last. In the first, Christ was our redemption. In the last, he will appear as our life. In the middle coming, he is our rest and our consolation. 
what is Bernard talking about here? He's helping us to see that standing as we do between the first and second coming of the Lord and how the whole of the church's life throughout history is one long pilgrimage from the first coming of the Lord to the enjoying of the second, that there's still a third coming of the Lord that we should continue to appreciate, which is in fulfillment of all, all the Lord's promises, what? To remain with the church always until the end of the world. as Christians, it's not just that we focus on the first and second coming of the Lord, but that there's a way in which we, living off the grace of the first coming, anticipating the second, somehow enjoy now a coming of the Lord in spirit, in power, in mystery. We don't see him as Israel saw him in the flesh. We don't see him as all nations will in glory but he comes to us invisibly, in spirit, in power, in mystery, in the life of the church, providing us, as Bernard says here, rest, consolation, strength, recreation on the church's pilgrimage from the first coming to the second. The church has appreciated the wisdom of St. Bernard's insight here. To prepare for the second coming of the Lord by looking back to and celebrating his first coming should not cause us to neglect the way in which Christ comes to the church and to individual believers now. By his grace and in mystery. After all, the scriptures themselves prompt us to look for the Lord's coming to us daily. Just recall the words of Christ. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. If a man loves me, the Lord says, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home Christ at the end of Matthew's gospel, just before his ascension, tells the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Ordinarily, when we consider Christ's presence to the church in mystery, we call to mind, first and foremost, Christ's presence in the sacraments. And with good reason. That's right. That's what Bernard principally, I think, is talking about or helping us to see. Is that as we celebrate the first coming, as we wait the second, let's not neglect the way in which the Lord continues to come to us now in mystery through the church and in the sacramental life of the church. In each of the seven sacraments, Christ is active as Savior and priest. He's the agent who pours grace into the soul through the instrumentality of the church, the instrumentality of the priest, but it's Christ who acts and gives himself, conveys his truth to minds, his love to hearts, 
even in the Blessed Sacrament himself, we speak of Christ's continuous, continued, sacramental presence in his church. Christ is present to us in his sacraments. In the sacraments, he does come to us, as we say, in power, in mystery. We don't see him. We don't hear him. We can't touch him. But it's an article of faith, and in the eyes of faith, we see and know his presence. He is present to us and acts in us through his sacraments. Christ has instituted the sacraments as the premier means of his communicating grace to us and sharing his life with us, incorporating us into his truth and love. Again, patristic preaching takes up this theme and expands on it. St. Ambrose has this beautiful line in his commentary on the Old Testament, speaking specifically of the prophet King David. St. Ambrose has this line, You have shown yourself to me, O Christ, face to face. I meet you in the sacrament. That's an incredible line. You have shown me yourself, O Christ, face to face. I meet you in the sacraments. A century later, St. Leo the Great, in one of his sermons, reflects on this same mystery. He notes how at Christ's ascension, which is tied to the mystery of Pentecost, Christ's physical presence on earth passes to a sacramental one. In other words, as Christ physically leaves the world, as he ascends from earth to heaven, returning to his rightful place at the Father's side, in now our flesh, for that fact of leaving physically, that doesn't mean he abandons his creation or that he's no longer present. St. Leo helps us to see that that presence of the Lord remains, but its mode changes. It's no longer physical in our flesh, but sacramental in the church. This is the second text you have on your handout. In order, therefore, dearly beloved, that we may be capable of this blessedness, when all things were fulfilled, which concerned the gospel preaching and the mysteries of the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the 40th day after his resurrection, in the presence of his, of his disciples, was raised into heaven. So on the one hand, Leo's reminding us why it is that Christ ascended. It's not that he was just late for dinner or had to get back to heaven because, you know, the Father was waiting for him. It was good for us. Leo says, for Christ to leave us physically. Why? So that the merits of his passion, death, and resurrection, which he had just accomplished, could be applied to all. Not just to the people of Galilee or Palestine, but through the sacramental life of the church be extended to all and for all time, until the end of time. Christ was raised to heaven, terminated his presence with us in the body to abide at the Father's right hand until the times divinely foreordained for multiplying the sons of the church are accomplished, the end of time, 
and he comes to judge the living and the dead in the same flesh in which he ascended. And so that till then, it was visible of our Redeemer, it was changed, he says, into a sacramental presence. And that faith might be more excellent and stronger, sight gave way to doctrine. Why is that important? Well, because as long as Christ remained on earth in our flesh, in order to receive his grace, you had to meet him. You had to see him, hear his word, receive his blessing, be in his physical presence. It's impossible that everyone in the whole world could accomplish that feat. But if he's no longer here, physically present, but is present sacramentally in the church so that everyone who hears the church's preaching hears Christ's voice. Everyone who receives his sacraments receives his priestly ministry. Well, then everyone who comes into contact with the church, which quickly spreads to cover the whole world, then everyone has access to Christ's truth in his grace and his love. That's why the ascension is so necessary and important. So sight gives way to doctrine, the authority of which was to be accepted by believing hearts enlightened with grace from above. So St. Leo, even early in the church's life, is keen to this aspect of the Christian mystery and of Christian life, and how it is that we wait between the two comings of the Lord. That between the two comings of the Lord, those two physical manifestations of Christ's presence to us in our flesh, in the middle, he's not physically present to us. We wait for him to return physically, but that doesn't mean that we don't know his presence in the end mode of the present simply has changed from a physical one to one of mystery, of sacrament. And that's how we know Christ, and that's how Christ remains present to us. Such then that Bernard later will say, we can speak about a third coming of the Lord between the first, between the two principal ones. He comes in our flesh in Bethlehem in glory at the end of time, but now in mystery sacrament to sustain us as we march from the first to the second coming of the Lord. The Second Vatican Council, too, for its part, repeats this aspect of the Christian mystery. In Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph 7, this is the council's document on the sacred liturgy. It's the third text there on your sheet. To accomplish so great a work, the council said, Christ is always present in his church. In other words, to bring us from the first to the second coming of the Lord, Christ himself is always present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the mass. 
not only in the person of his minister, the same now offering through the ministry of priests, who formerly himself, who formerly offered himself on the cross. There's a whole lot packed into that little clause there. Here the council is just reminding us that at every Mass, Calvary is represented, that the one who hung on the cross, offering his life in our flesh for the salvation of the world, is the one who, in the sacrament of his body and blood, feeds us with that very mystery. Through the ministry of the priest, it is Christ himself who represents for us, in a way that we can receive, the merits of his passion and death, So he is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, the priest, offering the Mass, but especially under the Eucharistic species. And here, the Council is talking about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, a presence that abides between the celebrations of the Mass, which is why we reserve the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle. We burn a candle next to it as a physical sign of Christ's divine presence in that sacrament. That's why we genuflect, that's why we kneel, that's why we keep the kind of decorum that we do in churches where the Blessed Sacrament is presence in honor of Christ's sacramental real presence to us in that mystery. The Council continues, Christ by his power is present not only in the Eucharist but in all of his sacraments. So that when a man baptizes, it is really Christ himself who baptizes. And you can apply that to the other sacraments as well. Christ is present in his word. Since it is he himself who speaks when the holy scriptures are read in church. He is present lastly when the church prays and sings. For he promised where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. So the church, through her experience, reflection on the Christian mystery, all the way through the last ecumenical council, is quite clear that what shapes the Christian life, what informs the Christian life, is not just this anticipation and waiting for the second coming of the Lord as we celebrate and honor God, worship him for the first coming, but we wait with a keen awareness that Christ remains with us and comes to us now, maybe not physically, as we're physically present to each other, but in his power, in his mystery, by his grace, through the sacramental life of the church. What I'd like to reflect on, though, for the rest of the talk is simply to point out how there's another way in which Christ comes to us by grace and by mystery, one that's not often commented on by the church or her preachers. Besides the sacraments, Christ makes himself present to us personally and intimately through our exercise of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. 
Aquinas understands that through these virtues infused in us in baptism, the human person comes to possess and enjoy a divine person. The believer comes to possess and enjoy Christ. So let's look at a few texts there from St. Thomas where he explains this for us. So starting with number four on your handout. St. Thomas writes, the word gift imports an aptitude for being given. Which is the fancy way of saying that it's the quality of a gift, what? To be given. That's what makes it a gift. It's something that's given by one person to another. And what is given has an aptitude or relation both to the giver and to what is given. So in other words, when you look at the gift, it has this quality of relating to people, that because the gift belong, relates first to the one who gives and to the one who receives the gift, therefore, you know, acts as a kind of medium or mediation, joining the one who gives to the one who receives. For it would not be given by anyone unless it was his to give. So the gift belongs in a certain way first to the one giving. And it is given to someone else in order to be his. So the gift also belongs to the one receiving it. Of course, that's the funny thing about a gift. It belongs to two people at one time, but in, a different, in different ways. It belongs in one way to the person given, giving. It belongs in another way to the person receiving. Now, Aquinas says, applying this, how do we understand the Christian life? How do we understand the gift that is the Holy Spirit, for example, that gift of the Father and the Son to us? Now, a divine person, he says, is said to belong to another, either by origin, as the Son belongs to the Father, or is possessed by another. But we are said to possess what we can freely use or enjoy as we please. And in this way, a divine person cannot be possessed except by a rational creature united by God. So, in other words, the persons of the Trinity, specifically the, Father, the Son and the Spirit, do not belong to us in the way that they belong to the Father. Why? Well, because the Son and the Spirit aren't ours to give to anyone. Only the Father possesses the Son and the Spirit that way to give them to us. But on the other end, insofar as their gift, we can receive the Son and the Spirit. And the Son and the Spirit can belong to us, can be possessed by us as men and women who receive the Son and the Spirit as a gift. I mean, the, the mystery there that, that Aquinas is helping us to see is, is remarkable, profound. I mean, how is it that a creature can come to possess God? Aquinas says that is what happens in the Christian life. And why? Well, because the Father gives the Son 
and gives the Spirit to us to be possessed by us as a gift. Other creatures can be moved by a divine person, non-rational creatures, according to saying, the birds, the bees, trees, and the seas. However, in such a way as to be able to enjoy the divine person or use the effect thereof, the rational creature does sometimes attain to this, not just being moved by a divine person, but possessing and enjoying a divine person as, Aquinas continues, the creature we are made partakers of the divine word and of the love proceeding so as freely to know God truly and to love him rightly. The Father gives us the Son and the Spirit to be possessed by us so that God can be known by us and to be loved by us. And insofar as that we can, in possessing the Son and the Spirit, know and love God, Aquinas says, that's how we're taken up into the divine life. That's how God takes us up into the divine life, to make us partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter says in one of his letters. Nevertheless, Aquinas continues, in order that it may possess God in this manner, its own power avails nothing. Aquinas says, to accomplish this great marvel, where a, the creature can come to possess the creator. No creature has the power to do that on his or her own. We don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to reach out and grab God and hold him. Impossible. No way to do it. Unless God makes it so and offers himself in such a way as to be grasped by us possessed by us, held by us, known by us, and loved by us. This, Aquinas says, must be given from above. For that is said to be given to us, which we have from another source. This, thus, a divine person can be given to us and be a gift. Because Christ has come once in our flesh, and because he will come again, he also comes to us now to be known, to be loved, to be possessed by us, in order to bring to fruition the first coming, his first coming in the world, and to prepare us for his second coming at the end of time. continues a few questions later on this theme, helping us to see that the rational creatures, the human creatures' possession of God is unique and mysterious. 
Aquinas says there, and this is the fifth text you have, for God is in all things by his essence, by his power, by his presence, according to his one common mode, as the cause existing in the effects which participate in all his goodness. So he's saying against those who would say, well, yes, of course we possess God because all things possess God as being created by God. There's a way in which God is present to all his creatures as their creator. He's present to them by his power because he maintains everything that is created, that shares in his being. There's no way in which those things to remain in being without God in some way propping them up with his power. So there's a way in which God is present to all things and in a way is possessed by all things. Aquinas doesn't deny that. He says, yes, that is true for every created thing. Every created thing has its existence from God and continues to exist because of God's power being exercised, sustaining that creature in being. And so Aquinas says, yes, there is a common way in which God is present to all things. But, he says, above and beyond this common mode, there is one special mode belonging to the rational nature, to human creatures, wherein God is said to be present, how? As an object known. As an object known that is in the knower, and as the beloved is in the beloved. Aquinas is saying that, look at how it is that the human creature possesses God in a unique way because God makes himself to be known by us, makes himself to be loved by us. There's a way in which we possess God. There's a way in which he lives in us by our knowing him and by our loving him. And since the rational creature by its operation of knowledge and love attains to God himself, According to this special mode, God is not only to exist in the rational creature, but also to dwell there, as in his own temple. There's a lot of the Summa that can appear overly philosophical, overly theological, overly technical, and overly dry, <laughs> but if you scratch below the surface and really get at what Aquinas is pointing to, I mean, he's describing here nothing less than God making every one of the baptized a temple for his dwelling. How? Well, in the special way that the human creature is. That there's something about how it is that we come to know things. I mean, through the senses, but there's a way in which we can speak rationally and validly, as Aristotle did centuries before Christ, that there's something about coming to know something, this podium, this building, you individually, that there's, I'm holding, the knower holds something of that thing in his very self, in his very intellect. There's something mysterious about the way we come to know things and how it is that we come to possess those things in our minds as we know them. And there's something mysterious about how we go out of ourselves in love to actually grasp and hold and possess and enjoy the things that we love. And Aquinas is just helping us to see that God makes himself one of these things that can be known and loved by us. And the way that we know and love them is that we 
apprehend and hold something of what we know within ourselves and actually then in loving it go out of ourselves to possess and enjoy. And that's how it is that we possess God or better, how God allows himself to be possessed by us, makes himself, condescends to us to be possessed by us. Enjoyed. So God is present to all creatures generically, Aquinas says, but the human creature possesses him in a particular way because God is an object of our knowing and an object of our loving. We really know him and we really love him as he makes himself to be known and loved by us. God is present in us because he is possessed by us in our knowing and our loving and by allowing himself to be known and loved by us, he comes to dwell in us, as Aquinas says, as in his own temple. This is effected in us through the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Because this kind of knowing and this kind of loving is not something that's natural to us simply because of the natural gift of reason and the natural gift of will and love that doesn't mean that by nature we can come to know and love God as he is in himself. God as he is in himself lies beyond the capacity of our natural knowing and natural loving to apprehend and grasp. And so God gives us the gifts, the virtues of faith, hope, and charity which come with baptism so that by our knowing and by our loving we can reach beyond the limits of natural reason and natural loving to attain to God as he is in himself, as he reveals himself to us in Christ. So through an active belief, the theological virtue of faith allows us to reach out to and possess God as he is in himself, as Aquinas says, first truth. The virtue of faith elevates and perfects the natural act of belief so that through faith's belief, one comes to know what God knows, what he reveals about himself and us, things that we could never know on our own. In faith, we enter into a communion of truth with God. We come to possess truth, personal, first truth, as he speaks to us. Through an act of hope, the theological virtue of hope allows us to reach out to and cling to God in himself as our final end and highest good. The virtue of hope elevates and perfects the natural act of hope so that through hope's hoping, one comes to love God in his promise to be the source of our final beatitude and to give us all of the helps that we need and cannot provide ourselves to merit heaven. In hope, we enter into a communion of love with God. We come to possess God as our highest good, promised, as he promises himself to us. And then finally, in an act of love, the theological virtue of charity allows us to reach out to and love 
and share life with God in himself as our best friend. The virtue of charity elevates and perfects the natural act of friendship so that through charity's loving, one enters into friendship with God. Loving him for his sake and the sharing of his happiness that he offers us. In charity, too, we enter into a communion of love with God. We come to possess God as our first and best friend in response to his befriending us in Christ. I no longer call you servants, Jesus tells the apostles at the Last Supper. I call you friends. When we ponder the mystery of what St. Bernard calls the coming of Christ in mystery, the coming of Christ to us daily that falls between his first and second coming, St. Thomas prompts us to look for Christ not only in the sacraments, but also in the theological virtues. The virtues of faith, hope, and charity are also means by which Christ makes himself present to us. Not just as an object of our knowing and loving, but also as an animating agent in our knowing and loving. When we believe that what Christ says to us is true, when we hope in his promises as true, as we love as friends, as he's made us his friends. Christ there is not just an object of our knowing and loving. He's in us by his power, making us, helping us to know and to love him. Christ is the object and the agent of our believing. He is what we know and the one who works in us to make us know. Christ is the object and the agent of our hoping. He is the one in whom we hope and the one who works in us to make us hope. Christ is the object and agent of our loving. He is the one whom we love and the one who works in us to make us love. And this is why it's important to focus on the theological virtues as well as the sacraments as constituting how it is that Christ is present to us in power in mystery between his two comings. So this, my brothers and sisters, is the perfection of Advent prayer. To prepare for the Lord's second coming by honoring his first coming and to remain watchful and attentive to the Lord's coming to us daily in grace and in mystery not just to be present to us, but to transform us day to day into himself, such that our waiting for him in glory can be undertaken with a mind and a heart that are already his. So we got work to do. <laughs> Advent's almost half over. In fact, it is half over past half over. But we still have a week, a week and a half before Christmas to perfect this prayer in us. In fact, to ask the Lord to perfect this prayer in us. Thank you.